Alright guys, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today we're joined by Dr. John Barry. He is a chartered psychologist and associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, honorary lecturer in psychology at University College London, clinical hypnotherapist and author of several peer-reviewed publications on different topics, including many of those publications on male psychology and he is the author of several books and today we're going to talk about his latest one co-authored with Louise Lydon, Perspectives in Male Psychology and Introduction. So Dr. Barry, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you Ricardo for asking me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. So um, let me first ask you, what were the goals that you had when writing this book? I mean, what, what did you set out to do when writing it? Right. Uh, I suppose the main thing that we had in mind was communicating a lot of ideas about male psychology that had not really been communicated uh, very efficiently at all um, over many decades. I think uh, male psychology has been something that's sort of fallen into the, the, the background quite a bit in academia. However, we're, we were also very aware that uh, a lot of people outside academia were quite interested in male psychology issues. Like there's a lot of uh, interest in community groups and uh, the general public in male suicide and the, the causes of it. And obviously, if if you're if you lose a family member, male or female, but uh, it's predominantly male, 75% of suicides are male. Um, you you wonder why it happened. You wonder how to prevent it. And incredibly, there seems to be a lot less curiosity in academia than you might think about the causes of male suicide. In fact, suicide tends to be looked upon as mar largely just a, a a something done by a homogenous group of people, maybe breaking things down a bit by demographics in some way, but not so much as a, a male issue or a gender issue. And I think that's that's that was one of the first things that we wanted to to do was to communicate some of these really important topics uh, and uh, communicate our understandings from doing a few years of research onto this ourselves into why these things happen. And because we had we we've very much got in mind this this two audiences for for what we're doing. So we got the on the one hand the clinical audience who we desperately want to communicate with, which is why we set up the the male psychology section of the the British Psychological Society. I think it's so important that that psychologists get to grips with some of the realities of of the situations facing men in terms of mental health and other things. But also then there's the the other group of people like the the general public. And so we had to write the book to, to somewhere down the middle of those two audiences. So it had to be scientifically and academically rigorous on the one hand for one audience, while being kind of communicated in a, a jargon-free way for the other audience, for the general public. So, um, so that's what we aim to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and by the way, it was a very interesting read and it is very nicely organized. So even I myself who speak regularly with scientists and I'm used to the jargon, I mean, I really loved it. So, Oh, thanks. I, I mean, we have to thank Louise a lot for that. She she did a brilliant job on the on the organizing and, and kind of corralling me back for I tend to kind of go off on things and she's she's very good at keeping things uh, uh, under tight control very well so but by talking about and focusing on male psychology i mean can you do it by simply focusing on male psychology or do you also have to take into account female psychology and perhaps contrast it with it and and perhaps could there be some male traits that are better understood when also considering their female counterparts? Uh, I definitely agree. I mean, that you can't really understand male psychology without having it in reference to female psychology. And usually with, uh, in science, a lot of parts of science, you have control groups, you have a reference group, and you can compare and understand things in relation to other things. And almost all the research that we've done has involved male and female participants. 
Um, in a way, I mean, we don't want really, I mean, we're called the male psychology section because that's our main focus. I think there's, and, and really we're focusing on these issues because nobody else is. It tends to, to be things that are, are overlooked and they're, they're too important to overlook. But even though we're very focused on these important male issues, uh, we have, I mean, we don't want to leave women entirely behind at all. I mean, like, for example, um, uh, we have about half the, the people who are involved in male psychology are women. So we've got lots of female researchers, female therapists. Um, and, and we think also that, that understanding um, male and female general differences in terms of things, for example, like uh, preferences for therapy, which we think is important because at the moment, men tend to seek help from therapists less than, than women do, uh, although men suffer apparently perhaps greater levels of mental health distress as shown by suicide statistics and things, other things too, like substance abuse, which is twice as common in men. But we still think that, um, that the things that we learn about men may well be applicable to a lot of women too. So for example, one thing that we found was that um, when dealing with mental health issues, when dealing with distress, men tend to want to just fix the problem. They don't really want to talk about their feelings about the problem, even though they might benefit from that, but they don't really, that's not the thing that they really want to do. They want to just fix the, the thing that's causing them distress. Whereas we found that, and other researchers have found this too, that women are, are in general, and of course, just should put in a caveat here, um, we're talking always in terms of, of generalities, and some people don't like generalizations, but in science, you know, that's that's what we tend to do. So like we, we have kind of a group of men and a group of women, but there's a lot of overlap between these two groups. So, uh, but one of the generalities we found is that, uh, that men tend to want to fix the problem, whereas women, uh, when they have a mental health issue or they're feeling distressed, very often will want to talk about their feelings. And, and this this helps them in terms of dealing with with how with their distress. Um, now this is quite important because we have a um, mental health services uh, that are set up around the idea of, of people talking about their feelings. By and large, that's what you get. Like especially with with uh, things like uh, psychotherapy, which are all very good. I mean, psychotherapy, counselling, all very good uh, ways of dealing with things but not really preferred so much by men who would rather not talk about their feelings so much as fix the problem. Uh, so what we think is that like a lot of women would kind of prefer the sort of hands-on fix the problem approach too. So we think what we do, what we learn in, the, in male psychology through the male psychology uh, section of the BPS and also through the Center for Male Psychology, which is independent of the BPS. Uh, all the things that we learn can be useful to women too. There's no reason why sh uh, some women shouldn't say, okay, actually, I want to, instead of talking about things to somebody, I want to just fix the problem. I don't, uh, there's plenty of women that that applies to too. So um, w I, I, it's impossible to, to leave women out of the picture and we wouldn't want to. Um, an interesting note, perhaps, is that at the beginning, when when myself and Martin Seeger first started up the the kind of the male psychology um, uh, venture, as uh, uh, we did about 10, 11 years ago, uh, we, or at least I had in the back of my mind that that this is something that we it might just be a temporary thing that where we we investigated these issues, we maybe found solutions to them. And we we taught all of the the academic people about these issues, why they're important, well, how to deal with them, and then academia would just sort of take that and kind of continue it on itself. So you wouldn't necessarily need a male psychology section, as such. Um, but after a while, I realised that in fact these are issues when they when issues face men in terms of uh, being you know problems for them, they very often are overlooked. Uh, uh, Martin Seeger coined a t uh, this uh, term, male gender blindness. We tend to to overlook issues when they face men. We're much more sensitive to them when we face uh, when they face women. So a man or woman with the same sort of problem, uh, the man will tend to, to not get the support that he needs, whereas it'll be much more quickly identified for the woman. And I mean, there's probably good evolutionary reasons for this. Um, in terms of um, keeping birth rates going, crudely speaking, uh, 
women are very important. I mean, you, you need women more than you need men to keep a, a community growing and healthy uh, in terms of birth rate and, and population. Um, so there's good reasons why we should take women's issues seriously. But I, th I, I think it's, it's just one of these things that maybe we've, we've reached a point in civilization. Perhaps I don't know what, whether that's true. But I, um, the, I think it's useful for us to be able to, to recognize that sometimes there's half the population might be really suffering, might be really needing help and attention. And, and to recognize that we tend to have a kind of a cognitive distortion around this. Um, we tend to, to have this cognitive distortion where we, we don't really see this. So like when we see men or uh, men having problems, we, it all gets a bit fuzzy and we don't really necessarily recognize that there's a lot of distress going on, that there's uh, maybe suicide at the end of it. And when we do, we, we, even, we tend to kind of go in for what can be called victim blaming, I think, in a lot of cases. We say, well, you know, the, so the male suicide rate is, uh, some people think it's, well, you know, that's men's fault because they don't seek help from therapists. Um, so you know, it's kind of blaming the victim of, of suicide. Um, whereas, as I've just said, we, we found in our own research and other people have found very similar things too. Uh, men tend to uh, not really want to, to uh, have the kind of help that's on offer in terms of a, a talking cure, in terms of, of uh, talking about your feelings. I mean, men, it's not the thing they gravitate to and it, they may well benefit hugely from that, but they don't gravitate to it. And uh, I mean, there's lots to be said about that too. I mean, I think there's there's failures in training of psychologists to be able to recognize uh, men's communication needs uh, when it comes to therapy, um, sex differences in, in preferences for therapy. Um, and also, I mean, I, I think men are often miscast very badly in a, in a negative light these days uh, in terms of what we see with them. Um, development of guidelines for therapists these days, which I think in some ways, um, it, in some cases can be actually potentially more harm than good for, for male clients. Those guidelines are you mentioning, for example, the APA guidelines for boys and men? I mean, the ones where they mention things like toxic masculinity and so on. Yeah. Um, so. To be fair, yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm talking about things. I, the APA guidelines, are, I think, are the most famous example of, um, of these problematic guidelines. So the APA guidelines, for people who don't know, they, they, the American Psychological Association issued some guidelines at the end of two, uh, autumn 2019. And uh, I think I'm right in saying, might have got the year a bit wrong there. But uh, yeah, it ago. was to 2019. Yeah, I'm not sure about the month, but it was 2019. I think it was August. But yeah, so uh, 2019. Thanks. Um, and uh, the, uh, some parts of these guidelines were, in my opinion, okay, I'll get back to that in a second. But what people picked up on, and rightly so, was um, that uh, some of the guidelines were really quite peculiar. And especially if you're a psychologist and you're used to doing like even no matter what your school of training is, really, uh, you'd be kind of you would find it difficult to recognize that the, the benefits of, of some of the things were in the guidelines. So, for example, well, the, the principal thing was that uh, men were kind of cast as as being um, uh almost the authors of their own problems by virtue of the fact of, of um, masculinity. Uh, and uh, what's, uh, toxic masculinity isn't a term that appears in the guidelines, but traditional masculinity is, is said to be something that's, that's a difficulty. So the, um, traditional masculinity is said to, to cause uh, competition uh, amongst men and, uh, uh, and it, it kind of sets men against other men and kind of causes sexism and things, homophobia. Um, and uh, basically bad for men's mental health and their physical health too. So, uh, and a lot of people just looked at this and thought this is this is ridiculous. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of people within psychology and even more so outside psychology. Again, we have the, the, these these two audiences um, just really found it hard to recognise 
um, themselves and their emotional problems when they looked at these guidelines. So, f and there was even a, some implication that that uh, patriarchy was was uh, to blame here somehow too. So, so uh, in a patriarchal society where men on average have more benefits than, than women. Um, you know, this seemed to, to be, you know, part of the explanation for for why masculinity is bad for men's mental health. So, um, and, and I completely agree. I mean, I just, I, I think as, as a psychologist and as a social scientist, we should be relying on evidence-based uh, therapy. We should be testing different types of of approaches and seeing what works and what seemed to happen with the APA was that they just jumped into this this ideological void and uh, which didn't seem to have any proper evidence base it had a base in, in other people's theories but um, but not really any very beneficial theories and I mean there, there is some some um, some you know other survey type uh, evidence behind it too but if you look at at some of this evidence, it didn't doesn't really stack up very well. So I think it's the the kind of thing that I still don't really understand why the APA would have um, published these guidelines. And I, I really I would like to see any evidence that that the, these are useful for for men and their mental health. Because to be frank, um, if if a man goes to therapy, it's usually you know he, you know he's in a sensitive state. A vulnerable state is going to need all the help and support he can get. It might have taken him quite a lot to to get in through the the door of the therapist's room, and you know he needs every every support, uh, uh, you know everything that that therapist can do for him. And I just don't think that they're really getting it from those APA guidelines. The, the, another part of the guidelines were that um, this is this sounds like a bit of a, just an academic kind of nature nurture debate. But another part of the guidelines were that um, uh, masculinity is a, is just a social construct, and so it's like it's uh, people men learn to be masculine and they learn traditional masculinity, so-called, um, through observing other people around them, observing their their culture around them, and interjecting the, these types of ideas and behaviours. Um, and I suppose one of the consequences, if you think that masculinity is just a social construct. Well, then it kind of makes sense that you you could attribute a lot of people's problems to f learning these maybe faulty ideas, and also you could you could perhaps change them. Like if somebody just learns to behave in a way from the environment, they can unlearn, say, in therapy, how to, how, how those sorts of behaviours and learn better behaviours. Um, but I, I think there, there's sufficient evidence that. Uh, masculinity is not simply a social construct. I mean, it, it's 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 not just about biology or genes or anything like that, but it's it's one of these things. It's a bit of both. There's there's a certain amount of of uh, social learning, and then there's a certain amount of biology underneath that. And it just means that if you're trying to to if you if you're judging men's behaviour as being a negative thing and contributing to the, their mental health problems, and you're attributing that just to their um, uh, learning these dysfunctional ideas and be behaviours. I think you're you're missing the fact that that trying to change these behaviours is going to be very much more difficult than that because underneath that there, there will be um, things like basically nature. Um, that that are going to work against that. So it's going to, you might be able to change behaviours a bit, or change for some men maybe quite a lot, but for a lot of men, it's going to be difficult for them to change very much because they haven't just learned their their behaviours. Part of it is is kind of who they are. For example, being competitive, you know this, uh, um, you know, or being energetic, you know, um, a lot of these things uh, are related to um, to. To biology. I mean, it, like it's fairly clear. I mean, we have, uh, for example, I mean, just, just uh, this is almost so obvious, but we have things like testosterone that that make uh, men have greater muscle mass, gives them more energy. It makes the, their mind think in a slightly different way. Uh, it, it facilitates things, for example, like uh, three-dimensional mental rotation, this ability to be able to kind of um, construct ideas uh, more in, in a more sophisticated way in, in space, which was probably good for things like sports or hunting or things like that. So men are kind of designed for for 
being doing these things that we see as being more masculine, more male typical. So to try and, and just say it's all about social learning, I think is is really it's it's a it's a large leap of of faith uh, to to say that, and I think huge numbers of people recognise that, and I'm amazed that the APA have, have still continued in that same direction. Uh, I should just say um, some of the guidelines are quite good, and I think some people are surprised for me to say this, but there's uh, there's ten guidelines in total. So, uh, guideline one is about um, this uh, uh, idea of masculinity being a social construct. Guideline two, uh, oh, sorry, guideline three is about um, uh, uh, masculinity uh, being a problem in terms of mental health. But then guideline nine is very good. It's about how to work with men in therapy. So really surprisingly, you have this kind of funny hybrid. It's like a, like, you know, one of these uh, kind of, uh, it's a, a really quite an odd sort of creature in a way. You've got these two guidelines that seem to be anti-male and then one guideline that seems to be very male friendly. And it, so it's an odd thing. And we've done some research ourselves and um, the, the Male Psychology Network, now the Centre for Male Psychology, um, at where we've uh, done a survey of 107 therapists. Uh, we found that the, the, the when therapists think that masculinity is just a social construct, or the patriarchy is, is a problem, they tend not to, so when they do kind of guideline one and guideline three, they don't tend to do guideline nine. They, they tend to, to maybe take a more sort of, um, uh, let's say, uh, judgmental view of masculinity in, in their approach to actually doing therapy. So you, the people who do male-friendly therapy, who work with, with men, who try and kind of look to men's uh, strengths and kind of work with the grain of those strengths rather than than trying to dismiss them as being no good or um, or trying to kind of impose other value systems on men instead of dealing with with their issues in a, in a more positive way. Um, you know, the, it's it, uh, you know it, it just the whole thing is really quite strange. I, I'm I'm looking forward to a few years down the line when historians will look back on this and they'll explain to me fully why we've, we're going through this sort of funny situation, having therapies, guidelines for therapy for men, which I, I think are probably not worth uh, the paper they're written on. Mm -hmm. So uh, another question, because the title of the book is Perspectives in Male Psychology, uh, throughout the book you explore different perspectives, uh, like evolutionary perspectives, biological, social, human, humanistic. So how do you integrate all of these? Because it seems to me at least sometimes they can get into conflict with one another and in some aspects perhaps one of them is correct and the others not so much and so on. So how do you go about integrating all of these different perspectives into generating a sort of overall view of male psychology? Uh, it's a good question. So the the, the different, I mean, there's, there's about seven or eight different perspectives in psychology that pe people tend to recognize. And the ones that we ended up um, focusing on more were just the ones that came up more often when we tried to understand and explain uh, different behaviors or different, say, solutions to, and approaches to therapy. Um, I would say that in general, when you're trying to understand human behavior, human behavior is very complex. And, and just like I was saying, when you're trying to, to look at understanding masculinity, it's not just nature, it's not just nurture. It's definitely a really interesting, complex interplay of both of these things. And it's the, the same, I think, with... Um, so when we talk about the social approach, we're talking about nature. When we're talking about biology, we're talking about nurture. Oh, sorry, the other way around. Uh, when we're talking about social approach, we're talking about nurture and, uh, and biology, of course, is nature. Um, and then we we found that other aspects were interesting too. So we had to, for example, talk about the humanistic approach, um, which it, it doesn't always fit with things like, say, an evolutionary approach. That, Like an evolutionary approach is often... I think, uh, in some ways, makes human behavior seem a bit self-serving and, uh, you know, it's, it's not generally very flattering. Whereas the humanistic approach 
uh, tends to to look at the best in people, I think, really, and and tends to to say, okay, we we have people are always striving to develop in a better way, and if you can create the conditions where they can develop in a positive way, they will do so. And mainly, we we had the the humanistic approach there, because we found that in terms of therapy. Um, this sort of approach was much more likely to, to be of benefit to men. So, for example, we have um, uh, people who take a kind of a, a positive psychology approach to, to uh, men's mental health and who will, instead of looking at, at a, a male client and saying, oh, well, this, this guy's, well, I'll give you an example. Like, so so if, if the male client comes into therapy and starts talking about football, for example, which is not that uncommon, like um, so for men to engage in a bit of banter. But the therapist uh, might just see this as being somebody who's not taking therapy very seriously and might think, well, this guy's more interested in talking about football than he is talking about his marriage, which has fallen to pieces. Um, if you're trained to understand male typical communication, you'll understand that men often engage in a bit of banter, as it's called, and people often think banter is a terrible thing, but actually it can be just a way of of people just kind of, you know, finding out about it, a bit about each other, seeing how much they, they're on the same wavelength and how much they can trust each other. So, in fact, it's it a man coming in talking about football and therapy uh, is really a, the very important uh, thing in therapy, which is uh, about kind of... Uh, generating that bond of trust, that therapeutic alliance, which is really crucial uh, in in the success of therapy. So, for a, if a therapist doesn't un understand what they're dealing with, there they can often just think that this is um, that this is a sign of somebody who's not ready for therapy, and they don't then take the person very seriously. So, I think the one of the the lessons for this is that uh, taking a humanistic approach, understanding somebody talking about football. It is maybe potentially a very positive thing, could be used to your advantage. And also, if they're competitive, say they play football themselves or very uh, kind of competitive in other ways, instead of just thinking that this, here's some silly man just being competitive, why can't they be more relaxed and more sharing and caring of each other? But you can take that competitiveness and turn it into something to, to be, say, competitive about. Uh, uh, being better, like uh, kind of competing with, say, his previous self uh, in terms of how he deals with problems and, and saying, OK, well, you know, how much better can I do then? Kind of being comp using competitiveness in a positive way. And there's lots of different uh, examples of how you can do that. But of course, if you're just tra if your training manual tells you that that men are almost a, a write off in terms of, of the, these male typical traits and characteristics well that that's too bad for everybody mm -hmm. from an evolutionary perspective and talking about mental health issues do you think that it affects men if they are not able to express themselves in a way that is evolutionarily associated with masculinity or if they fail to acquire the traits that are associated with masculinity? That's a really interesting question. Um, I would say, interestingly, if, a, if a, a man does not exhibit traditional traits of masculinity, and say, for example, um, is very open to talking about his feelings, um, actually, he's he's at an advantage now these days in terms of therapy because he, he will be able to find somebody who he can talk with his feelings about, and that might be very useful for him. Um, yeah, so, but in general terms, I mean, I think, you know, men are quite flexible in many ways and, you know, in terms of evolution, everyone's got to be flexible and we tend to, to, to fit in. I, I, you know, we don't know, not, men don't tend to be just stereotypes of what it is to be masculine. And, uh, and I think that there's lots of, I mean, there's loads of examples of men who are not very masculine, who can be very successful. I mean, they, they say, for example, that the uh, men who are maybe less interested in in a kind of uh, overt competition in sports and things like that, but might be very interested in science or in um, in in creative things like art, or they might be interested in engineering, which is a, a, a quite masculine, but it's not 
that are really kind of stereotypically masculine in some ways. I mean, they, they can be very successful. So I'm not sure that that it, it is very damaging not to be to be uh, a, a model of masculinity. And t- t- I mean, on this point, I mean, I, I should just say that that I, I'm probably uh, at uh, uh, basically a humanist in terms of of how I see um, people's development. Like men don't have to be really masculine i think that the important thing is uh, is people should should try and be who they are and be comfortable with who they are and uh, and i mean as long as they're not really damaged and kind of you know uh, uh, you know violent to people and things like that like i think people just accept it like if 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 you're a woman who's kind of a bit mass or a bit on the masculine end of things i mean that's okay i mean just that that's fine just to kind of try and develop the things that you feel are valuable and and hopefully, you know, your society will reward you for your uh, skills and your abilities and your hard work and things like that. And the same for men. I, I think we should just and I think it's, you know, this is makes it for a more diverse, interesting, rich world when you have people like that. And, and I, I would say a happier world when people are not striving to be things other than what they are. Mm-hmm. So just going back for a bit to the sort of nature-nurture debate. I would like to ask you to what extent the, does the presence of, fa- of a father play a role in the proper development of a boy and then to what extent does, does that have uh, long-term effects on their mental health? Right. Uh, so, so this again, one of these very important questions. Um, I think there's there's quite a bit of evidence now that having a, a man in the family structure is quite uh, significant in the benefits in terms of outcomes for for their children. So you have um, uh, fa- uh, families that that don't have fathers in them tend to have children who tend to be more inclined towards delinquency and kind of criminal behavior and and uh, you know, other sorts of behaviors that like that that aren't beneficial to them or to society like not doing so well in school and and, and other sort of poor choices and that, that's probably because um, men and women uh, on average tend to parent a little bit differently that's quite an interesting thing and women tend to, to take care with the of the with um, of the emotional needs of children more than men do, whereas men tend to do the, this this thing of kind of guiding their their children to to be sort of better human beings who will kind of be useful, who will fit in with other people. It's a, a kind of an, an interesting difference, and the caring is definitely there too from the men, but it's it's just this sort of guiding that that men seem to go in for more than women do, and and so understanding. Uh, the, the whole idea of delinquency and criminal behavior of children without uh, fathers uh, in home makes a lot more sense. I mean, and, uh, you know, there's a question of, of uh, you know, does every uh, family need a dad? I mean, it, there's probably, if, as long as the dad's not a destructive type of, of dad, probably, yeah, it's probably a good thing. I mean, it's a really unfortunate thing, getting back to to uh, mental health and suicide, but... Um, one of the problems that we have in in the UK and and some other countries too, is that um, being a dad, being a father, is devalued to such a degree that um, when families, when relationships break down, it's very easily for easy for for divorce to be uh, sought and gained, and um, it's then very easy for the dad to drift away, not drift away, but be, to be excluded. From the family, in a lot of cases, the dad will want to be there at least to support the children, but they might have a lot of problems with child access. Um, and we've done some research, actually myself and Louise Lydon did some research, um, looking at at this problem of of um, dads going through family court process, and um, and really there's quite a significant effect of of um, not being able to access one's children, not able to access one's children. Um, uh, a lot of dads suffered quite a, a, a lot of mental health um, distress as a result of that. 
Um, also, other problems with the family courts would cause problems like this too. But it seemed like the key, um, the, the key stressor for men when it came to, to mental health issues um, post family breakdowns and post divorce and dealing with, with things later was not being able to have access to their children or, or having restricted access or a kind of access that was granted one day but then cancelled the next day. All of these problems. So we have, um, unfortunately, we seem to have a society that that thinks that um, for raising children, the, the mother is all that's necessary and the dad's not really important. Um, and on the other hand, then we have these dads who desperately want to uh, support their their children and, and desperately want them to, to, to see them and, and make sure that they're okay. And we have also a society that, that blames men for lots of kind of criminal activity and behaviour and not realising that that actually a lot of this criminal activity and behaviour um, is done by guys who have never had a, a dad in the home or a proper father figure and never had that kind of guiding hand to help them deal with, say, kind of stresses or angers that they might have as a youngster. So they they end up, um, you know, end up acting out these things themselves. So and it's bad for for everybody I, I think in that case to, to just devalue dads in, in the way that that we do it's a desperately bad situation that we've got ourselves in i think mm -hmm. so the kinds of issues that tend to affect males more than females from a clinical psychology standpoint like for example let's say suicide substance abuse and even homelessness that is not uh, directly a mental illness but is very heavily associated with it I mean, are there common risk factors for these that get expressed more in men than women? I mean, is is just being a male a risk factor itself for these kinds of problems? No, uh, not really. Like, not really just being a male. Uh, men and women, t like, if they have, say, the same sorts of... For example, social deprivation is, is something that seems to be have a negative impact on... Uh, not everybody experiences it, but a lot of people. And so men and women can experience social deprivation or boys and, and girls growing up can experience it. Um, but they tend to, to be impacted by these experiences in different ways. So um, men do tend to act out a bit more in terms of, of uh, being violent, engaging in more violent activities, more gang activities. Um, but girls can can be impacted too, and they might be more violent, but not not as much as the men do. They might become more sexualized, kind of risky sex behavior. Um, so there's there's differences that we get the kind of common types of of traumas that that will result in in different types of behaviors in the longer term. But in terms of um, of dealing with these in a therapeutic context, I, I think we're we're really really um, not even scratching the surface of that. I think our understanding of of gender differences is such that we overlook a lot of these things. And it, it, in a way, it's, it's understandable. Um, having a, a a man who's violent uh, or has a history of violence uh, and who can be intimidating uh, is intimidating for psychologists to, to deal with on a one-to-one on -a -one level. And they might not uh, be able to kind of bring the usual levels of empathy to that therapeutic situation that would help them to learn that say this this guy who's got a history of violence was actually sexually abused as, as a child it's uh, and that that would be really extremely important information to to know about and to engage in in an empathic way as a psychologist really should but we're kind of we're we're so far from being able to do that and as i say it's in a way understandable because you know, violent men are are kind of threatening and intimidating, and we don't we tend to want to protect ourselves first rather than empathize with them. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about current trends regarding males, like for, males mostly, like for example, sexlessness and singlehood? I mean, to what extent? are romantic relationships and children a lot of those things that usually come with intimate relationships important in male life yeah um i, I do worry about 
these trends. I understand why they're happening. Well, I think I do. I mean, it, it's, it strikes me that a lot of men are disillusioned and perhaps rightly so. I mean, we live in a culture that, that tends to devalue men and, and devalue masculinity. And I don't think that's lost on children growing up. Uh, um, and, and I've done some research, which has looked at uh, the degree to, not to, to which uh, children exposed to, to ideas about toxic masculinity are affected by it, but what people uh, um, think about this as being a potential cause of harm to children, the fact that they might be exposed in the media, for example, to, to ideas about toxic masculinity. I, I really don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to, to, um, to be concerned that uh, the boys growing up with these ideas about toxic masculinity flying around um, are going to, to, to not be at, at an advantage when it comes to having a good sense of self-esteem and sense of uh, who they really are and so I, I and i think boys get affected in all sorts of ways because people are different but you get people who you get the boys who just kind of are maybe just feel bad about themselves and kind of uh, they think well i'm a toxic masculinity i'm a man so i'm masculine so um i've you know maybe maybe i'm a bad person underneath it all maybe I'm, you know, I'm a, a danger, potential danger to people. Maybe I'm, the people are, are better off without me around. And I think this, the implications of that are terrible. I mean, also that there's going to be men who, who say, who are going to just say, okay, what toxic masculinity? Well, I'm a man, I'm, I'm toxic. Okay, so that explains why I want to go and do all these terrible things. It's because I'm, I'm, men are toxic. And so, and I, th I think that the cause, like. Heaping shame on on people, making them feel bad about themselves, I think it's a dangerous thing to do. It's 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 um, can be a recipe for them just internalizing a lot of negative feelings, which at some point are, are going to break loose. And I, I think that when people try and I, I, I get a sense that sometimes people are trying to tell men off or, and warn boys not to be bad. And I, I think there's. there's when you treat people as if they're bad or potentially bad or, or they're, they're linked demographically to a bunch of people who can be bad, I, I really think that's a risky, um, a risky game that people are playing it, it, because it could just backfire. But there's a lot of things, I think, um, a lot of ideas that seem to make sense, which actually when you play them out, that they, they actually deliver the opposite of what you think. Mm -hmm. You've already mentioned early, earlier how mental health services tend to be feminized and perhaps when a male patient co comes there, we should have approaches that are more suited to their psychology. So, but do we know, do we, do we have good enough clinical tools to help men with the problems that affect them the most, like we've already mentioned, suicide, substance abuse, and others? Uh, again, a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that uh, I, I've begun to come to the conclusion of is that um, men can be helped with therapy, that's important, but we have to, to do things differently. Like, we, we, I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to help meant that much if we don't really try and empathize with them and understand who they are. If we're just going to impose stereotypes of what masculinity is on men, rather than looking at the person and saying, okay, what kind of person is this? How can I work with this person to help them? Um, so therapy could work, but at the moment we're, we're not doing, we tend not to do the things that, that are going to make it work. We need I, I think we need to, to have some proper training, reassessing uh, what we're doing. Um, but there are other ways that, that men traditionally have um, have um, helped their own mental health. Um, but these these tend to be devalued too these days. So, for example, things like uh, going to uh, playing playing sport, that, that can be very good for men's mental health, especially team sport, like playing football in a team, for example that can be good for men's mental health and part of that is getting out meeting people doing something active like getting you know getting fit getting exercise but but the social aspect is important too 
Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, men can can talk a little bit about what's going on with them too afterwards, you know, without necessarily talking all about their feelings and, and, and things that you might expect in therapy. But that can can be beneficial maybe in preventing things from, from getting too bad. Other things like surprisingly going to the pub just for like a a social drink with friends has been found to, to be uh, potentially useful in terms of mental health too. And I don't mean, I mean, so it's important for me to say, like I, I'm not talking about going to the pub and getting really drunk. That That is definitely not a good thing for your mental health in any ways. And it can be disastrous in all sorts of ways. What I am talking about is say like a glass of wine or a pint of beer with a couple of friends. And what happens is in those sorts of contexts, uh, uh, people open up a little bit, they talk about what's going on with them, they feel a little bit less inhibited to, to talk about their feelings. And, you know, they, they might not be talking to a trained psychologist or anything like that, but they might just get some friendly advice or it might even just be good to talk about their feelings. I mean, even though men are less inclined to them than, than women, it, men do benefit from that. And if they're with friends, they're not going to be judged. They're not going to have friends who um, probably who are, are going to be very negative about what what their, their their friend is telling them and extremely unlikely that their friend's going to start imposing strange ideas about masculinity on them as a way of trying to understand them. So the, the, uh, these traditional sort of ways of, of uh, men being together and doing things, um, which unfortunately are undervalued like people sneer at them and and think that they're not important and just not realizing that actually this is what men have been doing for you know forever and uh and trying to to make them feel ashamed about doing it is ridiculous and i think it's part of the failure to understand that that in in some ways i mean in most ways men and women are the same i mean there's very little difference but there are differences between men and women and some of them are, are maybe quite important to 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 value in terms especially if we're talking about mental health like the, these these things these ways of sort of everyday ways of dealing with your mental health um you know that they, they can be quite important we don't we shouldn't diminish them and we should value each other like men and women should should be you know valuing each other's differences i mean unless we we're determined to make each other exactly the same, a kind of a homogenous sort of thing. Um, you know, we, we should just, I think, uh, as I said about a kind of humanistic conception of people, just value whatever way people are, just sort of just accept it, value it, you know, appreciate the, the fact that differences can make the, the world more interesting. Mm -hmm. So we've already mentioned here how biases affect how we think about males and females, particularly in the case of males, how when they have certain mental issues and behave in ways that are considered inappropriate in society, we might do some victim blaming and also the fact that, uh, I mean, through some approaches like the ones coming from gender studies and feminist approaches and so on, we might be missing on important aspects of male psychology. But are there any major biases that affect research on male psychology and, men, and male mental well-being? Yeah, um, I think one of the, the, the key biases is um, something I've just alluded to there, which is something called beta bias, which is where it's the tendency to overlook differences between men and women. So that you, you kind of, in fact, that there's a whole sort of idea, which on the surface is very true, but, but taken too far um, is problematic. This idea that there are more similarities than differences. In fact, I, I said it just a minute ago myself, there are more similarities than differences between men and women. But if you take that too far and just say, well, therefore, we don't really want to look at those differences. They're, they're unimportant. We should we should ignore them. Well, then we can start getting into difficulties. Uh, the rationale behind ignoring uh, the differences, that this beta bias, um, seems to be that that some people are worried if 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 you if you recognise sex differences, it will lead to sexism, and I, I think that's a, a a kind of very kind of tricky road to, to start going down because 
um, ignoring sex differences leads to things like um, not recognizing that men and women have different needs psychologically and in therapy. And once you do that, you start, if you think the men and women are just the same, you can have a, a female typical uh, therapy that, that, that works more by and large for, for women than it does for men or appeals more by and large to women than men. Uh, you're going to, to not really recognize that there's loads of men who are uh, really falling by the wayside and, and you know having lives that are really uh, damaging for them and for other people and and the way to fix that is to just recognize okay so there are some differences between men and women what are they um, is it important to know about them and in what ways might what might we use this information to help people's lives help the lives of men and help the lives of women so that's that that uh, beta bias is is the key thing. Um, Martin Seeger um, uh, uh, suggested the idea of gamma bias too, which develops the idea of of beta bias a little bit further. It combines the idea of of um, alpha bias, which uh, beta bias was originally an, a reaction to. I think alpha bias is the tendency in research to, uh, to magnify gender differences. So you, you've got uh, some people who will tend to look at gender differences and, and think that they define men and women rather than them being just sort of interesting, maybe kind of smaller issues. But some people who exaggerate those those things um, are, are doing what's called alpha bias. So so uh, beta bias then is, is minimizing those differences. And gamma bias then is a, a combination of both. And it's, it's really quite an interesting idea. Um, it, it, it explains things like, for example, with um, domestic violence. I mean, we uh, anyone who's a victim of domestic violence, I mean, they, they should have everyone's sympathy. But when it, it comes to recognizing who is a victim, we tend to really, it's very easy to recognize the female victims. I mean, that, that's, and they tend to, to, to get kind of uh, magnified in the media. Um, and when it comes to male victims, though, w w people really struggle to recognize that there might even be any victims, uh, male victims of domestic violence of women. And for example, like if if you've got a man who's six foot three and a woman who's five foot three and she's, you know, throwing things at him or, or slapping at things like that, people try find it hard to really accept that what might be happening could qualify as being as important as what might be happening in in a situation where the woman is the victim so we tend to for for male victims we tend to to minimize we tend to 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 uh, distort um how important it is or the fact that that the victim is a man we but it's much easier to to do the other thing of of saying if a, if a man even uh, you know coercive control is now a big thing if a man shows any signs of of uh, wanting to control a woman whether through violence or other means that's considered a real issue but it's, it seems again really difficult for people to conceive of that in the opposite way and it's it's, it's down to magnifying problems that that affect uh, women and minimizing problems that affect men and, it, it, and one of the, the nice things about the gamma bias theory is that it, it, it explains other aspects of these gender differences too. So for example, if um, if somebody is successful, if it's uh, if it's a woman, it, it gets tend that you tend to either say, you know, brilliant, this is a great example of women doing something good, or their gender doesn't come into it. But if it's a man uh, who's successful, we tend to talk about privilege and and you know undeserved. Uh, opportunities to, to be successful and you know it, we, we don't seem to be able to to look at these gender issues um, or a lot of gender issues without magnifying or mi minimizing in a way that advantages women and disadvantages men and I think it disadvantages everybody really if we if we have a, a distorted perception of, of the world I don't see how we can uh, work with the world in a way that's going to have realistic positive outcomes for people. Mm -hmm. So I've already spoken on the show with psychiatrists and one of the issues covered was the fact that particularly when it comes to animal studies, 
males seem, seem to be the model that is more favored than females because females have more hormonal fluctuations and so it seems that there are aspects of some psychiatric conditions that are better understood and dealt with in males than females. I mean, is that something that you also deal with in the book or do you think that's um, do you think that there are other aspects of clinical research that also affect men? I mean, in terms of psychiatric medication and things, that, that, that's not really my field as a psychologist. But to the degree that that's true, I mean, it, it is, I mean it's, it's, an, it's an example of why we need to, to really understand and recognize and work with sex differences because of exactly things if you treat everybody as if they're the same like male rats and female rats being the same but note that like if you thought there was no reason to uh, to, to not think that uh, including female rats uh, was a good idea well then you're going to end up with a situation where you have medication that works better for for one half the population and might have terrible side effects for the other so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I definitely take this on board. It's something that that they've taken seriously in in medicine for the past uh, couple of decades. This idea of of uh, you know gender sensitive medicine. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, it it tends to be in the social sciences blamed on men, like as if it's, it's sort of the patriarchy of being disadvantaging women by by creating these these medications that that only work for men. Whereas uh, the reality is when it comes to, to, to human research, uh, you know, women are being protected really from the harm of, of uh, uh, the early stage trials of potentially dangerous medications. So you tend to find that mostly the, the, the early stage uh, of the clinical trials where you don't know the, what the side effects are, and some of them could be very dangerous. It tends to be men who are in these clinical trials. It's in the later stages you tend to, to get more women and you get more a, a better sense. But really, it's it's. Um, I, I think it's amazing that, that people would... It, it may be just an example of trying to find somebody to blame, uh, but it, yeah, these these um, I, I'm fully on board with the idea we should be sensitive in whatever uh, medications or therapies that we're we're uh, developing. We should be sensitive to the needs of of men and women in in what happens. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, we're reaching our time limit today. We will hopefully have a second part to this interview where we're going to focus on other aspects of the book. Today we focused mostly on mental health. There are also aspects like sports and exercise, the workplace, education, criminality, the military and so on. So hopefully we will get into that next time. But just before we go, and since we've been focusing on mental health, I mean, if, if through this book you can change anything in how clinical practice is done with men, what would it be? Yeah. Oh well, that's it's a big question. Uh, I suppose it it would be really just down to recognizing sex differences and and respecting them, not trying to to change them, not trying to say that that men don't want to speak in therapy. That's their fault. They should learn to to to, to speak about their feelings more. Just 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 stop for a second. Just think. Okay, so. Men don't want to, to, they're not coming to therapy because they don't really want to over their feelings. Well, how can we help them in another way that they do want to, to opt into? You know, we, we should be not trying to, to force, you know, patients into, into uh, things that they're not comfortable with. We should be trying to, it makes no sense to, to do anything other than to, to try and understand these people who are not turning up for for, for their treatment or uh, for therapy, because it has disastrous consequences for everybody. I think it's, so yeah, probably that's the answer. Like we just have to, to uh, understand sex differences, respect them and work with them. I think that those are the key things. Okay, very well. So let's end today on that note. And the book is again, Perspectives in Male Psychology and Introduction. 
Dr. Barry, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really loved the book and it was a big pleasure to talk to you. And as I said, hopefully there will be a part two to this conversation. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Ricardo Mendel. Um, a big fan of your show, even more now that I've been on it. And uh, definitely I'd love to come on the show again. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Akion Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardes France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.